Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Dorma McGruder. I'm going to be a pastor, and I think God must have sent me in here to meet you to be my first lady. Mm-hmm. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is uh, The Soul Snatchers behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Wisdom. These are stories that have some sadness in them and some joy in them from difficult situations people live through that they're happy to be on the other side of and wiser for it now. Pretty soon, we're going to be pretty focused on mostly happy stories (laughs) for our big holiday, winter holidays episode, which is coming up. And you know what? We thought it would be fun if we included some of your stories. We thought it would be fun if Risk fans emailed me uh, stories that last one or two or three or maybe four minutes long at most. 
just little anecdotes, just little fun things that happened to you during Christmas or Hanukkah or New Year's Eve, Thanksgiving, you know, any of these winter holidays, if you have any memories that are especially endearing or funny or heartwarming, you know, send those to me at kevin at risk-show.com. Just use your phone to record a super short little mini story. It doesn't have to be super great sound quality or anything like that. We just thought it would be fun to amass some of these and see if we could do something with it. So email me, kevin at risk-show.com and make in the subject line holiday story and we'll see if we can do something with it. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear an extraordinary story that Serena Eve Richardson, who was a very first-time storyteller, she'd never done anything like this before, she shared her story with us the last time that Risk was in Philadelphia. But before that, we're going to hear a story from a, a, a pro, someone with plenty of experience, Dorma McGruder. I'm telling you, you should go to Amazon right now and look for One Bad Decision. Uh, one Bad Decision Got Me In, One Good Decision Got Me Out is the name of Dorma's memoir. You can find it there on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can also find Dorma at dormamagruder.com. And Dorma shared this story with us the last time that Risk was in Detroit. Here she is now. It's Dorma Magruder with the story we call Resurrection. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. It's 1987, and I have decided to quit my job doing the budget for the Defense Department, and I'm going to open a word processing business. The reason I type 150 words a minute. I type 150 words a minute. Accurately. Still. And so I decided I am going to stop doing the research papers and resumes and funeral programs free and turn it into a business. I take my last paycheck and I go out to Southfield to the Hat Building behind what used to be Northland and I got 475 square feet of office space about the size of this corner over here. It was an inner office, no window. I'm the president of the corporation. It was my Oval Office. <laughs> I wanted to date, but I had to birth this baby. I had to do this. This was far more important. So during the week to get clients, I go to schools and universities and I put postcards and flyers on the bulletin boards. On the weekends, I go to the big churches or wherever there are big events like this and break all my fingernails putting flyers and postcards underneath the windshield. And people came. 
Who were some of those who came? Now, for those who are not native Detroiters who will see this, those who are here can bear witness that some of these names are some of the biggest movers and shakers in Detroit at that time. Mayor Coleman Young, Council President Gil Hill, Eddie Murphy's boss in Beverly Hills Cop, <laughs> Council Member Brenda Scott, Wayne State University Board of Governors, Bishop Noel Jones, Preachers of LA, Pop Winans, BBCC, Bishop Marvin Winans' father, Mm. What's his name? Les Brown. Okay, all of, you can clap. All, <laughs> these were my regular clients. And things are going well. And uh, Les Brown had just left reminding me he was Mamie Brown's baby boy. And I'm transcribing the tape and in walks Tyrone. Nothing special, nothing unusual, just Tyrone. And he needed a resume typed, and so I looked at it, and there wasn't a lot on it because he said he just moved back to Detroit from California. And I said, well, you can have a seat, and you can wait on it. You can type that fast? I said, yes. So he starts walking around the office looking at the pictures of me with all of those people I just named. You know all these people? Yes. Wow, you smart? Mm-hmm. You cute? Mm-hmm. You can type? Mm-hmm. You're well-connected? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a minister, and I'm going to be a pastor, and I think God must have sent me in here to meet you to be my first lady. Mm-hmm. He gets ready to pay me for the resume. I say, oh no, I'll take care of it. That's what good first ladies do. Why don't you come over to my house for dinner tonight? You can cook too? I said, I cook better than I type. Now for those who are Southerners, you will understand the Southern feast that I put before him. Oxtail stew, banana pudding, cornbread, lemonade, Pepsi, and my company. After we get through eating, we're sitting on the couch watching television and I see him begin to look really sad and that concerns me because I have just put this feast before you. So what on earth do you have to look sad about? <laughs> My daughter just got out of juvenile and he says her mother is dead and I put $700 deposit down on a flat and I'm gonna lose it if I don't come up with $500 by tomorrow. Oh, no problem, no problem, no problem. I pull out my checkbook and I write him the check. But see, when I gave him that check, he smelled my perfume. The perfume that some women wear, that men can smell, that women can't smell. The perfume of desperation. Because as much as I had going for me, my average day in 87 was $300.
my average day, my record day was $1,700. I had a brand new off the showroom floor 1987 titanium cougar. They were still making them big then. I bought my parents a brand new 1987 white Taurus. I had a lavishly furnished apartment, custom drapes, bedspreads, sheets, towels. I was having my clothes made. I was paying my tuition at the most expensive university in Detroit, which at that time was $200 a credit hour. I was traveling. I had an electric towel warmer in my bathroom. (laughs) I did not have paper plates. I had china, crystal, and silver. I was doing it and doing it well. But in spite of all of that... I felt that I needed a man to love me and I did not believe that he could love me because of who I was. I only believed he could love me if he needed me and could use me, so I started meeting his needs. And I started inviting him over for dinner two, three nights a week and he came, who wouldn't? And with every dinner, there was another bill, another request that turned into demand for money. Old tickets, back child support, light bill, I need some clothes, I need this, I need this. So I figure I might as well get something out of the deal. I said, well, you know, since you say we're going to get married and all of that, when are we going to have sex? When are we going to make love? You know, nothing else was going on. Oh, no, I can't touch you. You're God's woman. God will get me if I touch you. I said, okay. Two years go by, and he begins to wrap himself around me like a boa constrictor, and boa constrictors suffocate their victims. He says, you need to stop being open on Saturdays, and you need to start closing early because I'm your priority, and you need to be with me. I'm what matters most. He beat me. He kicked me. He tortured me. He left me for dead, and he never touched me. It was his words. You're the first ugly woman I've ever been involved with. You need to be giving me more money. You're not smart enough to run a business. And he began to get loud with me, and he began to back me into corners, but he never hit me, so I'm getting scared. He forced me to give him my car and drive his old car. I'm scared. Love has been gone. I'm scared. As he tells me to close my business, what happens? Clients stop calling. Clients stop coming. And I lost my business. I had a miscarriage. I lost my baby. And when they put all of my stuff in storage, my computer, my copy, or my furniture, I felt like they were closing my casket because part of me had died. That was on Friday. Sunday, I'm getting dressed for church, and he comes over to get some more money. And he starts pushing me back toward the bedroom. And I said, what are you doing? Because I didn't want sex, and I didn't want him anymore. He says, no, you've been asking for it. I'm going to take it. This is mine now. And I'm on my bed, and I'm fighting, and I'm fighting, and I'm fighting. And he said, no, this is mine. And I hear him unbuckle his belt And I hear the zipper go down And I feel the unthinkable And 30 seconds later he's finished raping me And he laughs and leaves I get up, I go to the bathroom And I tend to myself and I come back 
and I see my blood on my custom cream and peach silk bedspread. He moved his three grown unemployed children in. So I'm forced to take care of now five adults. I'm working temp jobs typing. Both cars were repossessed, so I had to get a used car, which he insisted on driving, taking me to work and picking me up, forcing me to give him that money too. And one night, I had a blinding migraine, and it's about six o'clock, and I needed him to come and pick me up and take me home or to the hospital. I didn't know which. And we didn't have cell phones back then. I beeped him. He calls me back. Well, it's not him. It's his girlfriend who reads to me my driver's license, my registration, and my proof of insurance. And she says, every time he's got your car, I'm driving it. He will be there when I'm finished. He got there at midnight. I didn't know what else to do. I moved back home to my mother's house for a little while, and then I was so ashamed to be there. I moved back out, and I found an apartment in somebody else's name, even though he still knew where I was working and would come and get money. And one night I came home, that was it. Couldn't do it anymore. I will never have enough money to pay his bills and mine, let alone birth another business. So I went to the medicine cabinet. I got my Darvacet, my Tylenol 4, and my sleeping pills. I was on some heavy-duty medicine. And I got my water. And I put it on the dining room table. And I crawled up under the dining room table to do the last thing that I could do. And I bared my soul to the God that I serve. And I said, Lord, you promised in your word that you would be with me. You promised you would never leave me. I've done wrong. I put him ahead of you. I put him ahead of me. But it's done now, and I can't take it back. But somewhere along the line, I fed somebody. I clothed somebody. I paid somebody's tuition. I've done some good. And on the strength of what I've done good, stop what you're doing in heaven and come see about me and come see about me right now because I am your child. And at that moment, in my spirit, in the dark, I saw and felt something like a huge black bowling ball pass out of my body. And for the first time in 10 years, I could breathe. And my energy is beginning to flow again. And I had to do something. I didn't know what else to do. So I crawled over to my desk and I turned on the word processors, one of those old ones. So it took five minutes to boot up and, and you know, those big eight inch floppies and all that. And it's good. finally it boots up, it lights up. And I started typing. And I kept typing, and the more I typed, the better I felt, and the better I felt, the more I wrote. And I said, wait a minute, if it's making me feel this good to type it, it will help somebody to read it. And it turned into a book, One Bad Decision. One bad decision put me in hell. One good decision got me out. Psychiatrists, psychologists bought some for their patients. There were women. They had patients that they didn't know until they came back and told them that they were going to kill their husbands, kill their children, then kill themselves. But they said, if Dorma can survive... We can make it. College students came and they said, as long as he wasn't hitting me, I didn't think he was mistreating me. He was saying some of the same things to me that Tyrone was saying to you, and I ended the relationship. Fathers, 
husbands came and said, I have been treating my wife and my children like he was treating you. Because I wasn't beating them, I thought it was okay. Now I know better and I'm doing better. It has saved lives. The book has saved lives. The book has changed lives. But I'm in Kroger six months later. And Tyrone and his son are walking toward me. And when he and his son were living with me, I had heard a conversation. Daddy, you should be nice to Dorma. Why? Because she's so nice to us. Tyrone said, no, I need her just like she is. Because if Dorma Jean Magruder ever realizes what is in her and what she's made of, she will leave me and shoot straight to the top of life and nobody will be able to stop her. So I have to keep her down because I make more money this way. That was the conversation that was replaying when I saw them walking toward me. Tyrone walks up to me, he says, where's my money? And at that moment I realized I was not a winner. I'm a champion. I looked at him. I said, I owe you nothing. You get nothing else from me. I am not responsible to you any more his son grabbed his arm and said come on daddy Dorma I'm sorry and I stand here tonight to you in this room and anyone under the sound of my voice in the future I do have a responsibility to you all to me but to you all as well to let you know prayer works God works, but more than anything else, your courage works. And wherever you are and whatever you're facing and whatever you're going through, whatever you don't like, reach inside of you and pull up your courage. Pull it out, live in it, walk in it, stand in it, and watch God explode your life to be everything that you wanted it to be. Thank you. It's early September, and I'm standing outside in a statue garden, saying my vows as the sun is setting on my wedding day, and it is beautiful. I look over at the groomsmen and at my brother Jesse, and he's crying. And I think to myself, he's just so happy for me. He's so happy for me that he's crying, and I continue saying my vows. But... There's this small part of me that stays with him because he's not really looking directly at me but kind of past me. And he has this strange sort of tortured look on his face. 
But at the reception, he was totally fine, just his normal, charming, bombastic, handsome self, just owning that tuxedo just as much as his usual cowboy boots and leather jacket, just making speeches out of nowhere and bragging to me about how much food he was going to eat. I did know that he had been having some problems with drinking over the last year and a half. Um, but he seemed like he had it under control. He had even declined the, you know, customary groomsman shots earlier that day, and he seemed totally fine. After I got back from my honeymoon, I wanted to make sure that we were seeing each other at least once a week, because even though he was a 27-year-old man with a 50-hour-a-week job and a live-in girlfriend and a busier social life than I would ever want, I was still his big sister, and I got to call some of the shots, and you know, I wanted to make sure we were still seeing each other and taking care of each other. I mean, the last time I was really sick, he was the one taking care of me, putting big glasses of water next to my bed with those emergency tablets in it. And I kind of missed that since we had both moved out. And I did worry about him because he was prone to this sort of behavior that was kind of unpredictable and that could get him in trouble, like at work. He was responsible for unloading shipments. And he would do this so aggressively that he would get into these accidents that would result in him needing dental work. Um, he beat up my first boyfriend without me even having to ask. He just did it. Um, and if we would go out with friends of his and they would say something to me that was you know, mildly, mildly flirtatious, He's, that profile would turn with that dark hair and that chiseled jawline and his muscles would become even more menacing and he'd just say, no, that's my sister. And they'd just back right off. For holidays, he would do anything and spend anything. I'd be like, do you have any Christmas ideas for mom? Because she never wants anything. And he'd say, no, but let me know because this Christmas I am going for broke. And I'd be like, why, though? You know, why? He could be hostile and then completely generous. Like, we had this disabled dog that couldn't really walk, but bark and bark and bark. And he'd be upstairs and he'd be like, shut up! But then he'd go and pick up the dog and be like, you okay, boo-boo? And just cradle him for the rest of the afternoon. This one time, I remember we were in the living room and um, Jesse just kicks the front door open and stomps into the room and he's holding a pile of pizza boxes and he goes, got pizza for everyone. And we're like, great. And he brings them over to the table and we open up the top box and it's, it's ham, pineapple, and onion. And nobody eats that. So we open up the second box and it's ham, pineapple, and onion. And so we're like, the last one's got to be plain, right? It's got to be. And it's ham, pineapple, and onion. And we're like, okay, they're just not going to get eaten. He was the same way with his drinking. He was just as unpredictable and over the top. He wasn't one of those, like, go get a six-pack or two and finish that off. He was like, an, I'm going to get wasted and go get a bottle and polish it off and be unstoppable and just need to get more and more and more. And there had been a few times in the last year and a half that he, we'd found him so drunk that we'd taken him to the hospital. But 
at the time of my wedding, he claimed he'd been sober for nine months, and we believed him. So I missed a few weeks of seeing him because he's busy, I'm busy, whatever. And one day his girlfriend drops him off at my parents' house because he's drunk again. I'm standing in the kitchen, and he bursts in and throws himself into my arms. And he's so heavy, and he's sobbing hysterically, and he's just saying, Serena, I need your help. I need your help. I hold him. And I think to myself, okay, what's, what's, what do I say? I had been through enough at this point with him. I'd gone to a few AA meetings and tried to learn what I could about alcoholism that I knew this whole thing about them reaching rock bottom and it really needing to come from within. So I said, I will always love you, but you've got to help yourself. And he said, I know. And so I brought him to the guest room and I laid him down with a big glass of water next to him and I figured he'd sleep it off. But when he woke up, he did not drink the water, he drank two bottles of Listerine that my parents had under the sink. It was at this point that I think we all realized that this wasn't a problem. It was a crisis. My dad, who's usually so patient, just had had enough. And he said, boy, you are coming home. And you're going to rehab. And that southern drawl that he gets when he's just pissed off. And Jesse said, okay. His girlfriend, Leslie, came, picked him up, and brought him back to their place so he could gather up his things and, you know, detox and get ready to go to rehab. And I was so proud of him. And I was looking forward to seeing him more. The next night, at about 2 a.m., my phone rings. And this is just not unusual for my family because my mom's a night owl and we talk really late. But for some reason, this night, my stomach just dropped. I knew that my brother was dead. So I answered the phone and it was my dad. And he said, Leslie called, Jesse's not breathing. And I think it was in this moment that I started to go into shock because the world became very molasses-like, very slow and dark. And it was like, I couldn't really say much or move my tongue, but I must have said something like, what? And he said that she'd come home and found him not breathing. An ambulance had come and taken him to the hospital. And him and my mom were going to meet them there. And he didn't sound like somebody who was going to see their dead child, Some, somebody, a father who had just lost his son. He sounded not hopeful, but not in that place at all. So. I clung to the helpfulness that I could provide. And I said, no, we'll come pick you up. My husband and I pick up my parents. And we're driving. And it's a 40-minute drive. And there's this oppressive 
silence filling the car. And I can't really move, and I don't really want an update, and I don't want to break this silence. Because I need to ride this moment. This last moment where I know, but I don't know, that my baby brother is dead. But my dad calls Leslie, and he listens for a moment, and he hangs up. And my mom goes, what'd she say, what'd she say? And my dad says, he's gone, honey. And my mom responds, are you telling me that our son is dead? And chaos erupts in the car. My father, this strong man, is weeping hysterically. My mother, who's this aggressive, strong woman, is asking in this childlike voice, is this a nightmare? Is this a nightmare? Is this a nightmare? And I'm somehow now in the back seat, and I've got my arms around her shoulders, and I'm just trying to hold her together, just hold my mother together. And my husband has to pull over because it's like, it's like being in a blizzard. And... The wind is just whipping the snow in your eyes, and all you can do is just close them against the onslaught and, you know, against the stinging and be assaulted. That's what the atmosphere in that car was like. And we get to the hospital, and I fall out of the car, and there's this cup of coffee that somebody had in the back seat that just overturns and fills my shoe, and I'm sloshing through these long, empty hallways, waiting for somebody to tell me where my brother is. And they bring us to this little room, this tiny room where I guess they put the families of the people who have recently died, and my mother's pacing like an animal. And finally, they bring us to see him. And my parents... They just shuffle brokenly to him, and I stand in the corner and let them, and there's a chaplain, and she says to me, you know, it's okay to cry, and I'm like, yeah, I know, but look at them. I can't cry right now. Who's going to bury him? Who's going to make the calls? They need me. And at his memorial, hundreds of people that I didn't even know he knew came up to me one by one and told me to take care of my parents. And I tried to. Two weeks after my brother Jesse died, I received his autopsy report in the mail on my birthday, my 30th. Although I tried to decipher the results so that I could tell my family that he didn't really suffer, the truth is that I don't really know what those last moments were like. I don't really know what happened. I know that he had a blood alcohol content of 0.67, which is outrageously high. It feels like he just slipped away. I also obtained copies of his bank statements. 
that showed purchases of alcohol almost every day for the entire year before his death. So he'd never been sober at all. So I don't know. I don't know if when he was standing up there at my wedding, if he was crying for me or just looking off into the distance at some monster. Thanks. is risk this is the japanese house behind me now and we just heard from serena eve richardson like i said serena had never told a story on stage before before she told that one at our last show in philadelphia and before serena we heard a little bit of aretha franklin Now that the holidays are in full swing, the post office is going to be busy. But you can avoid going to the post office because Stamps.com brings all of the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. You simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Stamps.com, it's just a no-brainer. Like over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com, including Risk and the Story Studio. We've been using Stamps.com for years now, and we love it. So don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There's no risk with our promo code RISK. (laughs) You get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Our final story on this week's episode comes from the recording we made the last time that Risk was in Seattle. We've had so many phenomenal shows in Seattle over the years. And this one comes from D.W. Baldwin. Uh, D.W. wrote the sci-fi novel Capricorn Rising. Look for that on Amazon. He had a short story in the Ride the Star Winds anthology from Broken Eye Books. Here he is now. This is D.W. Baldwin with a story we call In Kali's Shadow. Oh, you 
This story starts five years ago in an apartment in Woodenville. I'm laying in bed with my girlfriend, Kristen. We've been dating for about six months. Her apartment is filled with books on dressage and mechanical engineering because she's an aerospace engineer at a major aerospace manufacturer here in the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) She likes fast cars with four cylinders and a turbo, and she's especially fond of Subarus and horses and dogs. But tonight, we're laying in an off-white bedroom staring up at the dark ceiling because we have just come back from the Tri-Cities where we visited one of her friends who suffered a traumatic brain injury after falling off of her horse. And we're just laying there in silence because we know that this could happen to her. And she rolls over to me and says, DW, if this relationship progresses and we eventually get married and I fall off a horse, I need you to know that I've had three concussions and there's a significant risk that I could end up in a coma like she did. And if that's the case, I want you to pull the plug. I don't want to remain a vegetable and I don't want to wake up a different person from who I am. And I look her in the eyes and I nod because I grew up on a horse ranch and I understand the dangers. And she smiles at me and says, thank you, love, gives me a kiss, rolls over, and is asleep within five minutes, just out. And I'm sitting there watching her. I listen to her breathing, change, slow down, and eventually we get that... And tells me that she's out. What I don't tell her, and what I've never told her, is that every night after she goes to sleep, I start experiencing a panic attack, a deep existential dread of existing and of mortality and the awareness that I am going to die, everybody's going to die, the entire universe is going to fade out into nothing. I don't know why I'm getting these panic attacks because, frankly, my life is going great. I got out of a bad divorce. I've rebuilt my life. I've met this wonderful woman. Why are these panic attacks hitting me? They happen whenever I'm alone. They happen in the bathroom stall at work. And let me tell you, it's surreal to be sitting there flailing silently inside of a bathroom stall while trying to take a big dump in the fear that no one's going to hear you, but you can't stop. And at the same time, you're fighting the urge to just jump out of the door, just knock it right down, run out of the stall, pants around my ankles, and just start running down the street until either I have a heart attack or I find a magical, mystical door that opens up and exits me from this reality where everything dies. And it's been hitting and hitting, and I don't sleep at night. So this night, conscious of the weight of what happened at Tri-Cities with her friend and with the weight of what she's just told me, I take up my phone and I start scrolling. And tonight, I decide, you know what, I'm just going to punch in the exact details of what I'm experiencing. I've been to therapy. I've done pot. Nothing's helping. And I'm just desperate. And I Google the exact search terms and it's the same 10 search items. Then I scroll down to the bottom of the page and I realize that I've never hit page two on the Google search. And so I decide, why not? What do I got to lose? So I hit page two. And the second link from the top lists everything that I've been experiencing. And it's from a web page listing the Ayurvedic teachings of ancient India. And I go, well, why not? Click it. It turns out that 
According to the Vedic sages, what I've been feeling and experiencing is the touch of the goddess Kali Ma, the Indian goddess of death, time, and destruction. And what this is, is the curse of Kali Ma. It's this existential awareness that dooms men and women who experience it to always be aware that mortality is like that. But it's also a blessing. The sages go on to say that if a man or a woman perseveres through it, they eventually emerge from this process, this dark night of the soul, with a new and vaster, deeper appreciation of life and spirituality. And I think there's my answer. There's hope I can get through this. Weeks turn into months, months turn into years. Kristen goes from being a girlfriend to being a fiance. And in 2016, we decide to get married and we decide to get a house and I decide to publish a book. And it's all happening at the exact same time. So there's lots of stress just piling on in our lives. And Kristen is just by the book, you know, engineering mind go, list everything, just check it off, get it done. She's always driving everywhere. I'm always in the passenger seat. That's how our relationship works. She's an excellent driver. <laughs> but the stress takes a toll on her. We get married October 1st, 2016, and she starts sinking into seasonal affective disorder. We buy the house, and it closes escrow on December 1st, and we move in, but all of her boxes line the hallways and the floors. She hasn't unpacked. She spends her evenings and weekends sitting in front of the TV watching episodes of Heartland and uh, playing with our dog. And I'm sitting here going, okay, she's stressed out. She's recovering. It's okay. March 2017, it's the first full sunny day of spring, and Chris comes back from a girl's weekend, and she's energized, and she's refreshed, and she shows up, and she says, DW, we're going to go back, and we're going to go ahead and trim those dog's toenails, and then I'm going to give you the best fucking blowjob of your life. And I'm going, yes, let's do this. Let's go. Let's get this done. So we head out to the back porch, and I sit down in the chair, and I grab the dog, and I hold the dog, and Kristen bends over at the waist to start trimming the dog's toenails. And after a moment, she straightens up, and she's suddenly gone pale, and beads of sweat are popping out on her forehead. And she says, I think... I just got the worst headache ever. And then she starts to buckle. And I immediately lunge out of the seat. I've got the dog in the left hand. I wrap Kristen around my right hand, but her whole body weight is crashing down on my arm. And I'm sitting here staggering. And the dog is running around like crazy, trying to not get trampled. So I spin around and I dump Kristen into the chair and I shove the dog into the house. And I look at her and she's heaving like she wants to throw up, but she can't. And she's mumbling, but I don't understand the words. And so I quickly run around to the front of the house and I scream for help. But it's the first sunny day of spring and no one in my entire development is home. Everybody left. And suddenly I realize if I don't get back there, she's going to aspirate. So I run right back to her and I bend her over just in time for her to vomit onto the concrete there on the back porch. And I pull her back up and I clear her mouth. And I look at her and I say, Chris, love, can you follow my fingertips with your eyes? And I wave them in front of her face, but her eyes aren't tracking. And the word fast is screaming through my head, but I don't know why that word is there. And I'm sitting here wondering, why can't she move her right arm? And then I notice that the entire right side of her face is drooping down. 
and she's mumbling and no words are coming out. And I finally remember I have a cell phone. So I grab my cell phone and I call 911. The emergency operator comes on and I say, I think my wife is having a stroke. The medics come and it's a blur of ambulance rides to the hospital, calls to family members and friends saying, can you please come watch my house? Can you please get my pet? Can you please meet me at the hospital? Doctors rushing in and saying, we got to get her to a CAT scan. We got to get her on into an ambulance. We got to send her to Seattle. Okay, I got to get her right back to the house because I got to pack an overnight bag because I got to go to Seattle. All this is happening. Rapid fire. And I get to the house and I get the neurosurgeon calling me on the phone. He says, Mr. Baldwin, I'll make it very simple. I need to crack open your wife's skull to let the brain expand because there is a major bleed going on in her head. If you say no, she will die. If you say yes, she may die, but if she survives, we're buying her time. I don't think about it. I say yes. Days of horror turn into weeks of nightmare and turn into a month. The doctors have no answer. They have to wait until the brain stabilizes and Kristen stabilizes and she's in a coma brought on by the stroke. We have no answers. We think, well, it's, maybe it's her type 2 diabetes. Maybe it's her high blood pressure. We don't know. Second MRI comes and there's a sad consultation with a somber neurologist who tells us that there's a bright spot in her brain and it's been growing looks like a dandelion bloom and they have to do a biopsy to be sure but if it is what they think it is it's a glio a type of brain tumor and they're terminal there is no cure there's no process it felt like a sledgehammer to my soul when i heard that because we had only been married for six months at that point the following day at work i'm staring at the computer screen but i can't think And so I walk into the one place in the entire factory where I'm guaranteed to get some privacy, and it's the men's locker room. It's this long, narrow room shaped like an L, and I sit down on this bench, and I put my back up against this beige wall, and I'm looking at these dark gray lockers under these fluorescent lights, and the tears come to my eyes because I'm less than three months away from losing my home because I can't get to Kristen's accounts to help me make my mortgage. And now my wife is in a coma and is probably going to die from this brain tumor. And it is at this moment that I think of the curse of Kali Ma. And I think of Kali Ma. And I open my hands and I take a deep breath. And I say, great mother, dark mother, are you there? Can you hear me? You've touched me. And now I am coming to you to beg you. If it is my wife's time to die, can you please take her gently? But if she's going to live, can you please bring her back to me? And all I have to offer you are my tears. That is all I've got. The very next day, that morning, I get a phone call from the nurses at the subacute unit that Kristen's been put in. She's awake, and she's responsive. So I get down to her room, and I walk in. It's another off-white room. There's no decorations on the walls, just lots of respiration units and heart rate monitors and tubes connected into Chris. And I see her, and she sees me, and we make eye contact, and I see her. And I know she's there. 
And I reach down and I take her left hand because that's the only hand she has any ability with. And I say, hello. And she mouths the words, hello, back to me. I ask her, do you remember the stroke? And she indicates no. Do you remember the last six months? She indicates no. Do you remember us getting married? She shakes her head no. Do you remember me? And she nods her head yes. I say, Chris, we got married, but there's something I have to tell you. You've got a tumor in your head, and it's growing. In 10 days, the doctors are going to come in, and they're going to take you to surgery, and they're going to do a biopsy. We need to know how quickly this tumor is growing and what it is, but it's terminal, love. You're going to die, probably within six months. And I watch my wife's face contort, and I watch the tears roll down on her face. And I'm standing there holding her hand, wishing I wasn't the one to say that. And then this realization hits me that when we say I do to each other, there's a part of the wedding vows we never say but are implicit and is sealed when we make those promises, is that we agree to be each other's loving executioner should the time come. And when the time came, I disregarded Kristen's wishes. I didn't pull the plug on her. Part of me still wishes even today that I had, because I would have spared her this horror. But if I had, if I had executed her, I would have destroyed her entire family. And that was ultimately a choice I couldn't make. So being 41 years old, Chris still had neuroplasticity in her brain, and that meant that her brain would heal the damage from the stroke. Even though it didn't, it meant that it would not be able to overcome the tumor. She eventually recovers enough to be able to use a wheelchair, and she moves to an adult nursing facility. And one day I come to visit her, and she's sitting there in a wheelchair staring at the beams of sunlight coming in through the blinds, and she turns around at me, and she gives me this big smile. She says, oh, and she points at her bed, indicating I should go and sit there. So I do, and I turn around, and I watch her wheel her way through the sunlight at me with her left foot, her left hand outstretched to take mine. And I look her in the eyes, and I take her hand, and the moment that I do, the walls of my psyche fall away, and I feel her love and how happy she is that I am her husband and being there and guiding her and supporting her through all of this. And beneath that, I feel this omnipotent, omnipresent ocean of love and divine being that connects us all. And for this single sacred moment in the sunlight, I am united with my wife, and I have the strength to continue on. A month and a half later, the tumor has grown to slightly larger than a golf ball, and it's pressing down on her brainstem, stilling her autonomic functions and killing her. And she's in her death rattles. I'm holding her in my arms, and I'm singing to her so that she knows I'm there. And I sing, Beautiful in My Eyes by Joshua Cadison to her. And then I sing, Paravion by Mike and the Mechanics. Another day has passed me by And there's an island in the sun To see me through Another day in paradise 
But there's no reason, there's no rhyme without you. And halfway through the second song, she exhales her last breath and dies. If there is a heaven, we can find it in that moment where love and empathy are everything that connect us. If there is a hell, it is when our loved ones leave us to continue on while we remain behind. And if there is any hope, it is that we labor here under the distant light of paradise, awaiting the day when we rejoin our loved ones in the love that connects us all. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Andy Schauf behind me now, and we just heard from D.W. Baldwin. Don't forget to look for his novel, Capricorn Rising, on Amazon. I want to remind everyone that Risk can be found on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Risk Show. Also, I am on Twitter and Instagram at the Kevin Allison, and you can find the tables of contents for every episode, including links to the performers and the musicians, on the listen pages at risk-show.com. Other ways to follow our community, uh, we have our Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. And, of course, the biggest and best way to follow Risk is to become a member at patreon.com slash risk because there's so many other stories that we upload there, as well as interviews with people on the staff and journal entries of mine and sometimes photos and videos. There's all kinds of prize levels of things that you can get if you become a member over there. That's all at patreon.com slash risk. And it is hugely, hugely helpful toward keeping this running. Another thing you can do is to get the Risk book. <laughs> it's a perfect, perfect Christmas present. It's very affordable and anyone would love it. The Risk book has 37, I think, of our very favorite stories that have been rewritten for the page, including Q&As with the authors, lots of famous people in there. It's wherever books are sold or at therisbook.com. 
And to keep up with all our live shows, to find out where Risk is appearing live next, don't forget to check risk-show.com slash tour. And look for all of our education around storytelling at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Somewhere between drunkenness and jealousy, I watch you talking to some old friend. What a reunion. He recognized her across the room. How many years could there be to catch up on? And somewhere between drunkenness and honesty, I make a silent toast to the things that I do and don't miss. Come on, baby, try again.